It is now August. It is now time for jazz talk. <laughs> How's it going, Max? <laughs> it's going pretty well. One of these days, I'm going to get my pop filter set up here. It's going to make uh, my voice sound very beautiful, I've been told. Gorgeous. Yeah. Luscious vocal cords. <laughs> Enough about that. <laughs> We're here today to talk with uh, Jerry Steinhilber. He is a drummer, percussionist, educator, composer, arranger, board member, yada, yada, fellow Berkeley alum uh, with me as well. And yeah, he has studied with some of the best names in jazz, uh, but I'm super excited to talk to him. And he has, I think, a pretty cool trio concept. Yeah. We're probably going to get into it a little bit. Uh, he's played with Joe Lovano, George Garzone, Rudresh. Dave Holland, Robbie Coltrane, the list goes on. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, those are some big names. Should we bring him in? Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk to Jerry. All right. Hey, Jerry. Hey, Max, Josh. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I I can't thank you guys enough. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm actually extra excited about this one. I think this is our first podcast guest that we've had that has come directly or indirectly from our radio show, actually. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, Jerry, yeah, thanks for being here. We're super excited to talk about your music and kind of what you're about and what you're up to. I was hoping to touch a little bit on all the places you've lived, just kind <laughs> of to dive in. Okay. I was reading about you on a few different <laughs> websites and things. Sounds like you've lived all over the place from Nashville to Chicago to LA to Boston, Bellingham. I mean, that's a lot of moving. Were these musical moves? Pretty much every every one of those. So uh, once I got to Berkeley out in Boston, I fell into, luckily fell into the right crowd. I mean, that school is so huge that mm-hmm. uh, I would go home at, on Christmas break back to Indiana where I grew up. And then I would come back for the next semester and like three guys that were friends of mine were gone because not everybody can hang there. It's true. That's very true. I, when I was there, Branford was there, Winton was there, Watts was there. That's a good crowd. <laughs> yeah, well, they were all there while I was there, and they were all freshmen when I was freshman, and so... Oh, no they, way. Yeah, they were just another guy sitting next to me in Harmony too. Wow. Now, Winton and Branford kind of already had a rep because of their dad. Mm-hmm. Right. But... Uh, Tane was just another guy sitting next to me trying to figure out variations, and <laughs> it, it was interesting. That's awesome. But it was really, as you guys know, and I'm I'm over this now. Uh, it, it used to be a big deal for me, but that whole comparison thing that jazz musicians get into, it's it's evil, and it's it's really not a good idea to to do that. But it's impossible because there was this hallway that was so long. It, like if there was someone standing at the end of the hallway at Berkeley, like they'd be that big and it was nothing but but practice rooms with drummers in them. That is still there, or at least it was when I was there. <laughs> I think they've actually expanded it. Is there a whole hallway dedicated just to drum practice rooms? There was. Oh, wow. When I was there, there was, there was an entire building actually. Oh, you're kidding me. And that was no. practice rooms just for drummers? Yep. Oh, and wow. There was actually a room, uh, actually two rooms that had two drum sets in them each. And, you know, people would usually be in there with like a bassist or something, and they would just be shredding drums literally 24 hours a day. 
it'd be like a line out the door of people like waiting to sit in and stuff. Oh my gosh. But what I did after about four or five weeks of being there, I just decided I wasn't going to walk down that hallway anymore because it was too devastating Mm. because it's, it's freshmen that don't know, they don't have a clue what they're doing. And, but, but it's mostly upperclassmen and, and you're walking past these guys that are really, really playing well. And, uh, you know, when you're a freshman, you just, instead of appreciating that for what it is, you kind of start comparing yourself and am I ever going to get there? And for sure. right. so I don't know about you, Max, but I stayed away after a while. I didn't want to go down the hallway. Well, there's a healthy balance. You know, you got to hear people that are better than you, but you also don't want to be only surrounded by that either. Well, and plus in the practice room, all you're hearing, you know, they're, they got headphones in. So you're just hearing what they're playing to. So you don't even know, you know, you're right. There's a healthy balance. But at the same time, if you're hearing this guy with these crazy chops, you're just like thinking, I'm mm-hmm. never going to be able to do that. I, mm. <laughs> yep. you're, you're 18. <laughs> for sure. So, so I did Berkeley for a couple of years and then I got a, a gig on the cruise ships. So I was working on the cruise ships in Miami and St. Thomas and uh, actually Miami and and San Juan. Nice. It was nice, man. And the best thing about it is, is everybody who was there was from Berkeley. Wow. Hmm. And so we would play the show. We were the show band. And then, you know, they had those giant watertight doors that would close the uh, theater where we played and we would finish the show hang out for a couple of hours till everybody went to bed. And then we would play, like I played and listened to so much jazz when I was on the ship. I was on for like three and a half years. And and every night, every night, we would play from like midnight till 4 a.m. Oh my gosh, that's a lot of so, playing. So it was a workshop. Yeah, that's cool. You, you with me? So, and the, and the guys would, would, everybody, you know, the bass player would leave and we'd get another great bass player and and so it, it became a, it was a great place to learn because I think that's something else that, that, that young people don't realize. You can find people that you can play with that won't judge you, especially in the beginning, because if you start getting judged early on about what you're doing, it starts to make you feel like you're never going to get there. It's a poison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so I was reading a couple different things uh, people have written about you. So it sounds like maybe you communicated it to somebody else at some point that, you know, this kind of uh, sentiment contributed to kind of a disappointment in the education you were getting at Berkeley. That I don't know why that guy put that in there, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to say like, whatever, whether it was that itself or just kind of this drum hallway, seeing people, all this stuff and comparing, has this affected the way that you teach people now? Cause you teach a fair amount of students, right? Yeah. Well, first off, I don't know where, I don't remember even saying that to that reporter, but, uh, and I wasn't upset with the, with the, uh, education I was getting. I just, I got a gig and I left, you know, a lot of people do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, but, uh, what was the, what was the question you asked before that? Well, I mean, so I was just wondering based on, it sounds like that was a misquote or something, but yeah. Um, but even if we're just talking about, you know, walking down a drum hallway with all these people and kind of comparing yourself to other musicians who are, you know, at a further stage in their development, has this kind of shaped your teaching philosophy at all? 
Oh, of course. Like, uh, I think the, the most important thing that it did for me is, you know, I've probably had 40, 45, 50, 50 teachers in my life. Oh, wow. And, but I've only had two or three good ones, mm-hmm. right? And I'll tell you what shaped me the most was all those bad ones. So mm. when, when I'm teaching someone, I'm coming from a place that um, I can use what worked for me. And I think that that can be a problem for prodigies, like people who are playing by eight and uh, their sight, their reading is really good. And what happens is, is a lot of those, and not every one of them, but a lot of those guys that started young, when they start teaching, don't understand why everybody can't understand what they understand. Mm-hmm. The, you know what I'm saying? Yep. They don't communicate Definitely. that well. And so I communicate it really well because everything I got, I had to figure out myself. You know, I, now I had two or three mentors. George Garzon was a huge mentor of mine in Boston. And I used to go see the Fringe. Oh, yeah. Every Monday night for Me like. Too. Yep, I bet you did. <laughs> every Monday night, uh, uh, it was like going to school, right, Max? Yep. I mean, the stuff that they played, when I first heard that, I was just like, not only do I want to do what I want to do, you know, as far as other genres in jazz, but I want to play like this too. And the best thing that that I learned from the Fringe was those guys can go completely out and 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 make you feel like everything they're playing is composed just because they're listening so hard to each other. Mm-hmm. But then you would hear those guys on a regular gig and they would play their butts off. So not only did they know how to play free music, they knew how to play over forms. They knew everything that, that we all need to know when you're playing something other than free jazz. And so for me, having seeing the, the discipline, because that takes a lot of discipline to be able to play completely free and then be able to, to read a chart and play on the form, right? And so I got that early yeah, when I was young. And man, has that helped me because I love going downstairs to, to my studio and playing free for a couple of hours and then being able to adapt what I've come up with to playing over a form. And isn't that hmm. why we're isn't that why we're here to try and because I was also really good friends with Kenny Werner. Oh wow. Who's got that famous book, right? Effortless Mastery. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was hanging out with Kenny, he was just that was just a pipe dream for him. That was something that he was just trying to get over. And uh if you've if you if you haven't read that book, I recommend it highly. It'll what it'll do is it'll take you out of your head if you guys have ever read it, and it'll allow you to Again, no judgment allowed. In the creative process, the last thing you want to do is have a judge or have any judging. Like like in my trio, if there's a new idea, there's no yes or no. We always wait a few days and we record everything we do when we practice. And if you wait a few days, then usually the person who brought up the idea realizes this ain't happening or this works. Yeah. That's yeah, cool. That I was so lucky. I was very lucky because as as you know, Max, that school is it's hard to hang there, man, because there's so many great players and if you don't learn that early that uh and I learned it from the fringe, you just don't come back or you, you know, I've had, I know guys that just completely lost their marbles, man. Oh yeah. I do too. 
Well, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about your trio since you mentioned that. Um, that is sort of one of the things we're here to talk about as well. Before we actually get into that, I kind of want to talk about this style of composition, if you will, that we're sort of getting into here. So you kind of have this unique, iconic, I don't want to call it like a mashup, because it's not, but sort of kind of taking uh, bits and pieces of the essence of what maybe some great musician has done, kind of turning that into your own thing. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about kind of what this is that you're trying to do here? I'd love to, because that's the whole crux of this, of this project. So Matsuo Basho has a quote that I came upon about a year and a half ago that says, do not seek to follow in the footstep of the masters, but seek what the masters sought. And so what that does for us, um, one of my biggest influences, and I know I'm not a tenor player, is John Coltrane. Uh, it's funny, most of my major influences aren't drummers. They're, they're either piano players or, or whatever. I, I just seem to, I mean, let's face it, you're teaching a kid to play Mary Had a Little Lamb and it's going to sound that, 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 that. It's not going to be no <laughs> melody, right? So I think the fact that these guys could play melodies and then I started playing some of their solos on my drums, but that's another issue. What my point is, is that a lot of my influences were, were horn players. And so John Coltrane to me is, he's a major player. And in my, in, as far as I'm concerned in that, in the jazz realm, I mean, he's like, one of the masters. So, Oh yeah. Like in the, so. in, right. And so like in the Coltrane suite, we do uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight Coltrane compositions. And the suite lasts between 15 and 18 minutes. So when you come to hear us play that Coltrane suite, what you're seeing is us dipping our toe in the water of what Coltrane and Paul Chambers and Elvin and McCoy were doing. And, and you all of a sudden, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. You guys have transcribed, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. For sure. So, and I'm not talking about taking someone's transcription off the, off the internet. I'm talking about note for note. And back when I was a kid, it was picking the needle up, right? Now you can just move the yeah, YouTube thing button, over. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, but when you guys know this, when you transcribe someone solo, you're in their soul, man. Like you're That's as true. deep, you're as deep into their heart and soul of what they're doing. Um, you're as close as you're going to get, especially some guys that we haven't been able to see because they've passed on. So when I started this Coltrane suite, I felt him around me. I felt when I was when I was arranging it, and when we play it. You know, I don't feel like I'm trying to sound like Elvin or I'm trying to sound like Roy Haynes. I just feel like Train's aura is all around us and it works with every suite that we do with the Sonny Rollins suite, with the Miles suite, with the Monk suite. We just finished a new one called the Blue Note Record Suite. We've got another one that we're working on called Ahead of Your Time, which is Warren Marsh. Uh, Lee Konitz and uh, Lenny Tristano. Mm -hmm. So when you're in the, when I'm in those suites and playing them, the aura and energy of Coltrane is all around me. 
and it's it's as close as I've gotten to feeling the vibe of 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 each of these artists ever. It's it's the closest I've ever got to really like. I mean, if you're going to play, you know, uh, Central Park West or Equinox, you're going to get a vibe of of Train, right? But when you have all these tunes, I just think that uh, what ha- ends up happening is is every one of us, Josh Cook on tenor, King Doll on bass, and myself, kind of it's intense, you guys. It's crazy. It's it's like it's twelve to fifteen minutes of of being in that zone, and so. I started thinking, I had Ray Brown tell me one time, when he plays, he visualizes a hand coming off the stage saying, come with us. Whoa. And and you guys know as well as I do, there's a lot of jazz guys, and I don't see it as much here as I do in the East Coast, that kind of, here's what we do, we're going to wear whatever we want to wear on stage, either you like it or you don't, they finish the gig. They go home. They don't talk to anybody. Now, unless you're Miles Davis, I don't know how you could pull that off. You know, <laughs> I mean, if you're trying to create something, the, 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 the one, one thing that also is really important is that the audience plays a big part in what we do. I think when the trio performs, we're very much into performance art. So seeing the videos, you can get a vibe of what we do. But when we are performing live, um, We'll end things and I'll hear like, oh, or I'll hear, I'll be playing and I'll hear, woo. You know what I mean? And it's just because. You have to love the jazz woo. You do. (laughs) What I'm getting at is, what I'm getting at is they get inside the suite too. Yeah. You know, so, and I was explaining this to you, I think, uh, Max, you know, we'll be playing uh, this, this Coltrane suite and, and we're playing the intro to Equinox. Dum, 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 dum. And we're going to modulate into ba, ba, right into Dear Lord. Hmm. So you don't even, you know, and if I was in the audience and I heard a band doing this, I'll give you a quick quote. Dave Liebman said, if you're going to write something, write something that you can play the crap out of. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I tried to write things, and he also said, write things that you, if you're going to write original music, write something that is making you, it's making you enjoy what you're writing. Like you got to love what's coming out of your writing, or it's not going to work. And so when I put these together, man, I just, I love every Coltrane tune that's in here. And it shows when we play, you can see it in the trio, you can feel it. Getting back to those transitions, for guys like you that know this music, you're just thinking we're going to Equinox because we're, we're playing bump, dunkle, dinkle, dunk. What McCoy played, bunkle, ginkle, gunk, gunkle, ginkle, gunk, and they would go gunkle, ginkle, ba, 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 right? Well, we do a taste of that, but then we don't do Equinox. We go into Dear Lord. Very and cool. then, the, right. And, it, and, and so if I was in the audience and I heard that, I would think that would be so refreshing. Yeah. And just, just hearing somebody play. All the things you are, you play the head, you solo, you piano solo, bass solo, drums trade, done. And there's nothing wrong with that, but if when I think about what Ray Brown said to me, it kind of sucks the audience in because it's not only um, people who love jazz, but you're playing for musicians too. And mu- when musicians hear you, you know, you guys are just like I am, 
and I have to be careful with this because when I listen to jazz, am I enjoying it or am I analyzing it, right? There's a, quite a, a line to walk between those two things. Okay. Sure. So the thing is, is even if the jazz guy's out there analyzing it, oh, yeah, okay, they're going to Equinox. And then we don't go. That's fun. Yeah, it's kind of presenting something unexpected but still uh, accessible that people recognize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the vibe for the trio. That was the whole concept. That's awesome. Well, let's give our listeners a taste of it. I think we're going to keep the Coltrane suite as a surprise. So they're going to have to come find you to hear that one. Yep. But why don't we listen to the Miles suite for now? Perfect. All right.
This is great. I really enjoyed hearing this excerpt from the Miles Davis suite. Um, Miles's career is long and storied and go went through so many different phases. And I'm wondering how you approach trying to encapsulate him as a person and an artist in a single suite, uh, because it's stylistically goes through a, a lot of different stuff. And in this excerpt, I hear maybe like mid to later miles, maybe some like second quintet era stuff. Uh, but yeah, tell me about that. How do you approach uh, working on a suite dedicated to an artist who is defined by constant change? Super question. It's super easy to answer. It's uh, it's it's almost selfish. It's the music that touched me the most. Mm, fair enough. It's pretty simple because... When I, and I understand Miles. I mean, I just saw something on social media where he's playing like a, he's playing like What's Love Got to Do With It, right? That Tina Turner tune. So mm-hmm. yeah, he's done everything, right? It's interesting. I, uh, uh, we've got a gig coming up at Boxley's soon in September with, with George Garzon. So it'll be my trio with Garzon. And again, no chords. Mm-hmm. So I've got a feeling that's going to probably – <laughs> gonna, we're we're going to probably go out, but he's also sent some tunes he wants to play because George shares a birthday with Coltrane. So it's going to be a John Coltrane, George Garzon celebration. So getting back to your question, I, I asked George or, or George and I, when he was here before and we played some gigs around here, the Pacific Northwest, you know, we would drive to the gigs and, you know, we were listening to like, I want to talk about you. Uh, Coltrane thing. And he said, Stein, man, a lot of people call me Stein. They just take the first five letters. He goes, Stein, man, isn't it funny that that this music that we listen to is the same music we were listening to when we were 30? Like, I don't know if you guys find that, but the, the ones that really touch you, like I love looking at new stuff and listening to new stuff, but the stuff that really touched you, you find yourself putting that record on again. Hmm. It's just because it's so important to you. So everything in every suite is music that was played an incredible, uh, important part in my jazz life. Hmm. Yeah. And you're right on the money, Josh. If you, if you go through each one of the suites and you look at the era, hmm. it's the era that I was stuck in for a long, long time. And, and, it's, and it's tunes and music that complete that I am in complete love with. I I'm in love with the music that I've picked. Sure. That makes a lot That's of sense. That's awesome. And yeah. that goes back to the Liebman thing, right? Playing music that you really know. Yeah. You had mentioned uh, this cordless format and for listeners that may not be familiar with that, what that even means is uh, a jazz combo or group that doesn't have a piano player or a guitar player, or in my case, an accordion player that plays the chordal role that sets up the harmony. And so this trio is a saxophone, a drums and bass and nobody playing that chordal role. And I'm curious, what made you decide to go in that direction? Especially because when you look at the suite for Miles Davis and train, both of those groups, um, even over time, like every iteration of Miles Davis' group usually had a piano player and uh, this doesn't. So what was, what went into that decision process? Well, the most important thing is finding the right players. If you, if you find the right cats, 
you can pull it off. If, if you, if you don't have the right guys, it makes it hard. And you guys know from taking arranging classes, so much easier to write for three horns, not two. And so I've got to write for two instruments, right? Basically the bass mm-hmm. and the tenor. Mm-hmm. And Josh also plays soprano. So it, I, it's hard. It's, 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 it's hard to, to make the arrangement speak, but I'm very lucky. Um, King Dahl, the bassist, has this huge Charlie Hayden, uh, Dave Holland sound. So he, he can play sustained notes, which helps. And Josh Cook, he's kind of a – I don't know how many people even know who he is in Seattle, but once people start to hear him, it, it, he's – and he's, a, he's another disciple of George. He's got his master's degree. He went to NYU. He studied with Garzone for years. So when you start to hear this, and um, to answer your question a little bit more uh, – uh, a little better, I would say that I spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours in Starbucks with my computer and my headphones trying to figure out how to make this music speak without a piano. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I hope, I mean, what I've heard from people, it's working, but I, I mean, you guys don't know this yet, I don't think, but we have a Bill Evans suite. Whoa. (laughs) Right. Right. And so trying to capture, and I think it's a, it's a bit of a, uh, it's kind of a quirky thing to have drums, saxophone and bass. It's a different niche. And I think that that right there makes it interesting, but it has to, I mean, I had to think, I had to spend so much time putting these tunes together because I basically only have two instruments to use chordally. Mm-hmm. So what's your writing process like, like when you come up with this? So one of the things I like as a drummer that I'm sure you can probably relate to is that when you're playing in a chordless setting, there usually ends up being a little bit more space that you can kind of uh, talk with as a drummer, which mm-hmm. is kind of fun. But like, how does that composition process actually look? Are you like writing out, we're going to go to this piece here and play this part of the melody and then... Are there kind of like loose transitions between things or is it just, do you write everything out or is it? Uh, In the beginning I did. I uh, like that Coltrane suite is probably five or six pages long. Right. Wow. And so it's, yeah. And so I put it all in Sibelius and then uh, printed the parts out for the cats, but it's interesting. So to your point, I just spent hours and hours and hours Pouring over lead sheets and trying different changes to make the uh, transitions smooth. Mm-hmm. But then again, like you said, I had to keep in the back of my mind, there's only three of us. And so I try to play a lot more, like I add a lot more, like you said, I have, I have more room to talk. And so, you know, when we're playing uh, Joshua, uh, boop. So boom, dun, dink, dun, 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 dun. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play Herbie's part. Ba 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 And it, when you listen to it, it's kind of a novelty to have not have a chord chordal instrument. And I think people still hear Marco, they still hear Herbie. That's a really good example, actually. Yeah, I mm. like that. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Huh. So, yeah. But you're right. There's a lot more space now. And so, like, the way I play when I play with my trio is nowhere as close to the way I play when I play with a piano trio. or Definitely. Or, or with a singer or, or a big band. You know, I'm not going to be... I'm not going to insert myself into the conversation as much. I'm going to play more of the role, right? You guys know. Yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, I'm very fascinated and interested to hear uh, a Bill Evans suite without a piano. Me too. Especially because of so <laughs> so much of what defines him is that that piano color, like more than a lot of other pianists even. Like some pianists are, for example, play like super linearly. And uh, like I can imagine how that might translate to a saxophone line, for example. But Bill Evans is so much about textures and like overlaying of harmonies in my, like that's my experience of him at least. So uh, yeah, I'd really curious to hear what you do there. Well, let me tell you a quick story. So um, Kenny Werner was at a birthday party for Bill in New York Mm. and every piano player in New York was at the birthday party. (laughs) For sure. And Bill had a beat up spinet Mm -hmm. that he played in his apartment and so throughout the day into the late night, into the morning, um, cats would go up and play for Bill, right? And uh, at the end of the night, I, Kenny said it was like three in the morning, Bill went up and played. So mm. this is after 40 guys have played this spinet, all right? Not a great sounding spinet. And as soon as Bill played the spinet, everything changed. Wow. It sound he Kenny said it sounded like a completely different instrument than the other 40 guys. Fascinating. That's what goes with what you said, Josh. He's got his I just got a chill down my back talking about it. He's got such a high level of harmonic knowledge that he could make a spinet after 40 guys have already played the spinet sound like a completely different piano. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. As far as us playing the Bill stuff, I do some things harmonically. Like we do that. You guys know that that Bill that that Bill song, "Peace, Peace." Yeah, yeah. Of course you do. Well, we do a rendition of that. And, and if you know about that song, Bill used that as an intro for some other time, the ballad, some mm-hmm. other time. Mm. Um, and so we do a we do that we do "Peace, Peace." But texturally, if you're talking about Bill's piano playing, I think we hint on it. But most of the stuff we do with Bill is more how rhythmically he played with his trio. Hmm, so yeah. you could you could think about the harmonic thing, and we could talk about that for hours. But it's also the rhythmic thing. Yeah, that makes sense, especially you with know? Scott LaFaro uh, on bass and the way the bass moves with that trio. Well, too. I love that trio, but I'll tell you the one I've been listening to that I can't get enough of is Eddie and I can't remember his name, uh, Marty Morell. Mm. Oh yeah, that's right. So, and I've been I've been listening to that one like crazy. And so, their arrangements were so thick and so and so, and he did them all the time. Our arrangements of those tunes when we do Waltz for Debbie, sure, you're going to hear be da da do di da bo do be di da bo do ba do be ba do ba do be, and then ba ba do da ba do da ba da Bill, right? So we put that in the trio. So you're getting those rhythmic things that that the trio played the arrangements obviously that bill thought up 
And so you're you're kind of getting a vibe about Bill. I don't know. I hope it works. Sure. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's great. Cool. Well, yeah, I was just really fascinated by yeah these these kinds of suites that are dedicated to instrumentalists for which you don't have that instrument because that happened with the mouse suite. You don't have a trumpet, but at least you do have a horn playing melodic line. So that I understand more. So when you're talking about yeah Bill Evans one, who's a giant in the piano world, but yeah I kind of curious to listen to another suite and uh, this other excerpt that you sent to us is yet another pianist who is known for extremely pianistic stuff. Let me say something about that and you guys will agree with me and I know mm. Max knows what I'm talking about. Monk is a lot easier to play because he's so much like a drummer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This makes sense to me. Like when you play Monk it's easy to go bop, bop, bop you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like he would do, right? Totally. Completely different than Bill. Ah, uh, for sure, for sure. So, like, if somebody calls a monk tune on the gig, I'm good, man. I I can play. That makes sense. I can play monk on my drums. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. But we can't really play Bill. Yeah, <laughs> I I think of uh, monk as a lot of like really bold, strong lines, like speaking visually. And then uh, Bill Evans to me is watercolors and impressionistic watercolors, which is definitely. A, a challenge on a percussion instrument, I imagine. Although pianos are percussion instruments in a way too. I will tell you this: there's some transcriptions that I've found online of Bill that I have been playing on my kit for the last two weeks. Oh wow! Because his lines, if you really get into Bill, you don't need to play piano to to get something from Bill's solos. Like I've been reading them verbatim, just on the snare drum, for sure, and just just playing them right, and then playing them along with Bill. Well, guess what? I got all this new vocabulary. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's check out this monk suite. Yeah. Thank you. 
right this has some really really interesting playing on it and it's it sounds completely different than as it should i suppose than the other one that we listened to with miles um are you playing a shaker at the beginning of this one or is that a what exactly is that so that's two vic firth general timpani mallets (laughs) with pill bottles filled with popcorn Uh, whoa whoa (laughs) 
I duct taped it to near the end of the mallet, near the near the top of the mallet, and it takes a second. You have to hold them pretty tight, or it'll spin. Whoa! But what it does is it's you know you get the mallet sound boo, and you also get yeah fascinating well i was gonna say uh, you know maybe this has something to do with I, I think you have some orchestral background playing as well i don't know how much of that involved taping pill bottles to timpani <laughs> <None>. ballads, but <laughs> you never know see that's another thing with this trio josh and king and i have to do everything we possibly can to do something new creatively yeah again without the piano so that way, the audience never misses it, right? Yeah. Well, there's a huge world, you know, if you start bringing in little percussion things, I mean, that's, you know, that's Pandora's box. You can <laughs> find any kind of sound you want. Well, mm-hmm. I'm not a big guy for uh, a bunch of different, I mean, some guys who play all these different things, there's guys in Seattle that do it that I really love, uh, Alex Rommel is one of them. Do you know Alex? I don't. Hmm, I don't He's either. got every sound you could ever think of. Anyway, and he plays them super tasty. Hmm. But um, I don't want to go too crazy with that stuff. I want to keep it traditional, keep the, the instrument traditional, and not maybe add cymbal on top of cymbals. Oh, cymbal stacks, stacks, yeah. Right. I, and so, because I think I can get that sound myself uh, out of what I have. Not to and mention, the, you have to carry more symbols. Yeah, oh, I don't. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not interested in that. But um, so, um, yeah. So using that stupid little popcorn, it just makes people go, "What is? What's he doing now?" You know. And, and so it's. I'm not playing anything hard to play, but it's just a new sound, and I think we're all trying to do that in the trio because we're fighting hard to be creative and fresh and new for the audience. So any little thing we can do that's different, whether it's harmonics on the bass or going off the horn with Josh going high or going low, anything that we can do to be creative, we've given license to each other to do it. Absolutely. It's just a funny little side story that I just thought of, but I subbed for this play or Broadway show thing recently. There's a part in the show where he's supposed to get a kind of a shaker sound, sort of almost kind of like what you were playing with. Um, and I was listening to the thing for how to get that sound. And, you know, I was like, okay, I'll take a shaker, shake the shaker. Right. But apparently like, and it actually does technically say to do this in the music, but it says hit shaker on whatever beat it was. And uh, apparently the, the person who had filled in before me or whatever, literally smashed the shaker, like broke it, <laughs> like hit the thing with drumsticks and just like destroyed it. Cause apparently huh. that's the sound they wanted. Did I they, it's kind of a fun. <laughs> Were you breaking a shaker <laughs> every show, Max? Well, no, I, I shook the, I brought my own shaker in cause the other one was broken actually, but, uh, I didn't break my own shaker. No, I was just like, you know, it's going to be a slightly different sound, but I'm going to shake this thing instead of destroying it. Interesting. Yeah. I I've done, I've done many, 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 many Broadway shows. And 
as you know, man, now that you, you know, that you're, as you're looking at that part, who knows? <laughs> There's I a mean, lot of the, interpretation there. <laughs> well, the guys that wrote those parts. Yep. yep. <laughs> well, anyway, going back to your music. Uh, so you've talked a bit about George Garzon. George Garzon's awesome. The Fringe is awesome. Um, rest in peace, Bob, of course. Yes. Uh, the drummer in that group just recently passed away. How has uh, spending time with and playing with and learning from these amazing musicians kind of influenced how you approach? Because you're not a sax player, right? But you mentioned a little bit kind of learning from from George and stuff. How has that affected when you're trying to play a piano player's music at all? Or has it? Just because you're learning from someone who's not a drummer, you know, I figured maybe there was a a parallel there between like that and approaching music that you don't have the instrument for in your group. Again, I think it comes back to trying to create a group sound that will work with the suite. Like we also do a John Schofield suite. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) All I'm doing is, is trying to take three instruments and, and make, and some of the stuff doesn't work. Right. We have to like, okay, that tune, we need a different tune, you know. Um, but if you want to talk about the influence George had on me as, as far as the stuff I'm doing right now and, and, and what we're doing. If, if you've ever heard George, man, I mean, he. I've heard George. <laughs> yeah, I know you guys have. Um, he can make the saxophone not sound like a saxophone. That is very true. You know, and that so very true. I, I think he, you know, kind of in a the backdoor way had a lot to do with because if you 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 went just like I did to see him when you were there, um, th- there would be nights where he would play the sweetest, most beautiful ballads that would completely crush you mm-hmm. with his sound, and then they'd take a break and they'd come back and then it'd be right in your face. Almost mm-hmm. like a a metal guitar would be, yeah. You, you know what? Thinking you, outside the box with the sounds you can even make. With and your so that's that. That's what he brought to me because I would I was completely floored when mm-hmm. I used to I used to religiously go every Monday night. And so, oh yeah. All right, I have a drum nerd question. Sure. What symbols are you playing? So I have <laughs> a uh, uh, over here. I have a light Zildjian. Uh, K, it's like a light ride, they call it. A buddy, when I was living in Chicago, a buddy of mine, Joel Spencer, and I, I bought 20 of these rides. He bought 20 of these pasty uh, or pasty, whatever. That's a lot you of rides. Call. Well, he, he <laughs> bought 20 of the pasties. I bought 20 of the Zildjians. And we put them on a credit card, and then we went through them, and he got two, and I got two, and we sent them all back. Whoa. That's actually a good way to do that. Well, they got this symbol.com, right? I still, even with headphones, I just, I, I got to play it. until you play it, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know? So I got the the, the, the the K over here. I got the uh, the Peisty over here. And then just underneath the K, I got a 21-inch Mel Lewis. Uh, mm. Not really a swish, so it's got a tiny bend at the top. It's a little swizzle or whatever they call yes. it. Yes. Yeah. And then Jeff Hamilton helped me pick out, I've got that big freaking China boy over here. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, that I Jeff think it's Hamilton. His birthday today actually. It is his birthday. Happy birthday, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> Happy birthday, Jeff. That's right. And then over cool. here I got uh some old Bosphorus, um Jeff Hamilton Bosphorus when he was with them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Well, awesome. Um, one other question. So you have other groups aside from this trio, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, those, I'm assuming, have a different composition arranging process than this trio does. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah. are, are there any other interesting, unique uh, composition arranging elements to those groups? Or I would are they say more straight ahead? Yeah, more straight ahead. I mean, uh, we definitely... Uh, try to put our spin on things. It's, I have this group called the Jerry Steinberg jazz explosion, which basically it's, it's, it's the best guys in Bellingham. It's Blake Angelos on piano and uh, Thomas Harris plays with us. Oh yeah. And Steve Jones plays uh, percussion. Um, sometimes we have Brian Cunningham on guitar and then the nucleus would be the trio. So the cool thing about that is, is that, two tenors up front. So Thomas has his own style who also studied with George and Josh has his own style who studied with George. And so they play off of each other. They're not the same. And and I think the audience loves that. The last time we played the jazz center here, we sold out because everybody knows who those people are in Bellingham. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. And we tried to pick tunes that would allow people as much, uh, improvisational freedom as possible. Very cool. And I went through and I, I just said, I just to tell you, I went through and I wrote Josh solo, Blake solo, Thomas solo, bass solo out. So I, all the arrangement I really did with that band is you don't want to hear everybody solo on every tune. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, you mentioned the jazz center Bellingham. I did a little digging. I found out you're on the board there as well as the person that connected us with you, Crystal. Mm-hmm which is pretty cool. I've played there myself a couple times. It's awesome. Can you tell us really quickly just what that organization is? Sure. The biggest thing that we push is education. Um, we're a nonprofit. Cool. Yeah, we're a nonprofit. And uh, Christian Castellari, you know oh, Christian? Yeah. Great drummer, and, yeah. And, uh, and Roger Yamashita. Nice. Him, him and yeah. Christian head up the education department. And so we have uh, – Everything from 70-year-old guys that play piano that just can't find people who understand the music to play along with. Yeah. All the way to young guys who don't really know much about it at all. And so they Christian and Roger put these groups together. We just did our first, um we just did our latest uh, camp and we had something like 15 students and I think they had two ensembles. So that's a big wow. part of what we do. That's so it, cool. Thank you. And I that's a that's a big reason I'm I'm in it because I'm I'm all about educating, you know, guys that are gonna be around after I'm not around. Right. And because this music's gonna die, fellas, if we don't do that. Well part of that is playing too. And you have some playing that you're gonna be doing down here in Seattle as well as elsewhere, right? Yeah. So what we've got is uh this what is today? Uh, I think Thursday. Today is the yeah, Thursday. Yeah. So tonight I'm playing <laughs> at, a, at a place called the Honeymoon with uh, Blake Angelos and King Dow. We we've had this jam going where you know I play the first hour and then cats sit in. Is that a and weekly we, jam? 
Well, it was before COVID. We did it for about two years every Thursday. Cool. But now it's once a month, first okay. Thursday of every month. Um, and so that's great because Kevin Woods sends all the guys that are over 21 over to play from nice. Western. Um, and uh, so does uh, Feingold because he teaches there. And Greg Williamson is there now too. Oh, nice. He's he's teaching drums there at Western. So, yeah, we have cats that come over and, and jam. So I got that tonight. And then on August 14th, we're at the Royal Room. Uh, August 27th, we're playing uh, an Art of the Jazz, Art of Jazz series, Jazz Project thing at Samson Winery here in Bellingham. And then another gig at Bellingham at Bar Sacati on August 31st. And this is all on my website, www.jerrysteinhilbert.com. That was my next question. <laughs> yep. And then in September 14th, here in Bellingham, it's going to be my trio with Garzone. That's uh, it's a 6:30 start at our new uh, at our new uh, home, the Firehouse. Have you guys Great. played there yet? No. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's awesome. Okay. It's awesome. It's it's really awesome. It's great sound. I'm going to try and come check that out. Yeah, you should come. It's a it's a really nice place. And that's the first uh, that's the first show of the season. And just to give you a little sneak preview, man, we got Steve Smith coming with Vital Information to Bellingham. Wow. Oh wow. He's coming, and they're talking to Hamilton. Hamilton, they're, we're trying to get Hamilton's trio to come, like maybe the last show of the season. Ari Honig is coming back. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's starting to become a situation up here in Bellingham where we're not messing around anymore. It's, oh, that's it's, awesome. It's the real deal, and I'm so happy that they asked me to, to be on the board. But one more thing. See, September 16th, for all you people in Seattle – we're at Boxley's. It'll be my trio again with Garzone. Cool. Cool. Well, that's about all we have time for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Thank you.